Welcome to The Alexander Standard. Today's episode, Cassander. the Alexander's Standard, where we rank all the successors of Alexander the Great. From Perdiccas to Cleopatra VII. My name is Dustin. And I'm Meredith. Well, how about we just dispense with the small talk and go straight into him? Okay. He's been a long time coming, so let's talk about Cassander. Uh, I'm in- I'm really interested to, to like learn what you think about him after today, because he's, to me, he's always just kind of like come off as kind of a brat the way I've talked about him so far. And I wonder if today's going to change your mind. I mean, I've loved him since I first heard about him. So Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's just do it. Okay, so to begin, a note on our sources. For much of our discussion of Cassander, I'll be relying on a relatively new book. I think it's 2019. It's called Antipater's Dynasty. Alexander the Great's Regent and His Successors by the renowned Hellenistic historian John D. Granger. So, now moving on to etymology. Although we know him as Cassander with a C, the original Greek version of his name, or the actual Greek version of his name, rather, is Cassandros with a K. Mm. It is very likely that Cassandros comes from two Greek words. Kekasmai, meaning to shine or to excel, and another, aner, meaning man. Thus, the meaning of this would be shining upon man or excelling over man. Or shiny man. Shiny man. Shiny man patootie. Again, of course, the name may be better known in its feminine form, Cassandra who in Greek mythology was one of the daughters of Priam, Mm -hmm. the king of Troy, Mm -hmm. and sister of Hector, and was cursed by the god Apollo to have the gift of prophecy. Yes, and and she prophesied that uh, Paris would destroy them all and that they should kill him. Not not just the gift of prophecy, but it was also the curse. That that no one will believe her. There it is. You got it. Mm -hmm. All right, so moving straight into Cassander. According to Granger... Cassander himself was likely born around 355, which would make him only a few years younger than Alexander himself. In Cassander, then, we have a pretty direct contemporary to Alexander the Great, almost a version of what Alex's life could have been like. But, of course, as is always the case with our subjects, we know next to nothing about Cassander's early life aside from the barest details. To start... We know that Cassander was the son of Old Man Antipater, whom Alexander left in charge of Macedon at the start of the Persian War. Cassander was also somewhat the middle child of a large family, including nine siblings. He had three sisters, Phila, Eurydice, and Nikaia. He also had six brothers, Iolas, or Eolaus, Pleistarchus, Philippos, Nicanor, Alexarchus, and Paraleus. And that's all I got for that. The big old family. Mm-hmm. As for his early life, it's very likely that Cassander was a royal page, 
at Philip II's court. It's also pretty clear that Cassander studied with Aristotle because of a comment that uh, Alex makes later. And that's about it. We have conflicting reports on what Cassander was doing when Alex set out on his campaign against the Persians. It is possible that Cassander started out on the campaign with Alex, since some sources state that he was present as one of the commanders at the first battle with the Persians at the Granicus River. But Granger says this is not likely. In the end, no matter where he was in the start, Cassander ultimately did not continue along the campaign with Alex, but remained home in Macedon with his dad, Antipater. As for the reasons why, we're not real sure. Granger points out that Cassander was certainly old enough to join Alex, since he would have been around 20 years old in 335. So being too young is out, that's not an excuse. It must therefore be, according to Granger, that Cassander was deliberately kept home by his father, Antipater. It's possible, for instance, that Cassander was in poor health at the time of the wars, there doesn't seem to be any instance of people being accused of cowardice for staying behind, for instance. And there were plenty of opportunities for battle and glory back home in Macedon. So in the end, we just don't know why Cassander stayed behind. One interesting possibility, however, is that by keeping his sons at home and not allowing them to go on campaign with Alex, Antipater prevented his sons from becoming potential hostages of Alex. Should the king suddenly get into a bad mood, which has happened before. So now we jump ahead, significantly, to the year 324. Antipater eventually did have to send Cassander, along with one of his brothers, to Alexander's court in 324, the year before Alex died. The reason for this, however, was not necessarily a good thing. By June of 324, Alex had dispatched Crateros along with Polypericon, who I'm sure is going to have a long distinguished career, as his second-in-command to lead 10,000 old and or disabled Macedonian veterans back to Macedon for demobilization. But, Craterus also had been ordered to replace Antipater in Macedon, while Antipater himself was going to be expected to lead a fresh corps of recruits to Alexander's court in Babylon. This was concerning for Antipater, who saw this not simply as new orders, or even a demotion, but almost like a deportation. That is, Alex was taking him away from Macedon, possibly bringing him to Babylon with the intention of executing him on the basis of some trumped-up charge. In response to this, Granger speculates that Antipater sent Cassander ahead to Alex's court in order to reply to the king's orders. Basically like, hey, message received. But also, Cassander may have been sent ahead to explain to Alexander that it would be really difficult, or in fact bad, for him to pull more troops out of Macedon. Alexander was out of touch on Greek affairs. In fact, we know things were heating up in Greece at the time, and, as we also know, this would culminate in the, the next year in a big revolt against Macedon called the Lamian War. As for a time frame, Cassander probably crossed paths with Crateros and company in January or February of 323, and then may have arrived in Babylon to meet Alex around April just a couple of months before the king died. Unfortunately, once Cassander arrived in Babylon, he and Alexander had some big problems. I think this is when you're going to start to feel bad for him a little bit. First, Plutarch states that Alexander was actually afraid of Antipater and his sons, so you're already off to a bad start. Next, shortly after he arrived, Cassander saw some Persians bowing down to Alexander, probably performing the proskinesis, prostrating themselves on the ground, you know, the thing Polypericon laughed at. 
Mm-hmm. Now, Cassander was raised and had spent all of his life in Greece and Macedon. So this kind of stuff was actually surprising to him. You'll recall that a lot of Macedonians were alarmed at the sight of this stuff at first, even those who were with Alex in Persia. And remember what happened with Polypericon? Mm, didn't Alexander hit him or something? Yeah, he like threw him on the ground kind of thing. Yeah. So it's somewhat understanding then that when Cassander saw these Persians bowing and link and prostrating flat on the ground in front of Alex, he burst out laughing. Well, here's how Plutarch describes Alexander's reaction. But Alexander was enraged and clutching him, that is Cassander, by the hair with both hands, bashed his head against the wall. No. Yeah, a little bit. Another time, when some new guys arrived at Alex's court, apparently having traveled a long way, don't know from where, and were accusing Antipater of treachery, Cassander naturally spoke up in his father's defense. To this, Alex interrupted Cassander and said, What do you mean? Would these guys really have traveled so far if they weren't victims? Just to lie and make up false charges? Cassander replied that the actual fact that these guys had come so far and had no evidence proved that they were making false charges. This this next part has a joke that I don't get. <clears throat> uh, Alex then burst out laughing and made a joke about Cassander giving a slick answer to the question, something about it being proof that Cassander had studied under Aristotle, but then immediately said that Cassander would rue the day if it turned out that he had done even a slight wrong to the people accusing him and his dad. Also, apparently, Alexander hit Cassander's brother on the head with a staff for an unknown reason. Literally, I think the source just says he plunked him on the head. So, not a good start at all. In fact, Plutarch states that Cassander was basically traumatized by these experiences and would shudder whenever he passed by an image or statue of Alex years later. Yeah, some PTSD right there. Well, yeah, PTSD in the D, yeah. A little spicy deja vu. Yeah, or a concussion, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um... Or caused by a concussion, yeah. On the other hand, there is some evidence that Cassander wasn't entirely innocent in his interactions with Alex. Plutarch gives us another story where Cassander forced a man named Python, cool name, to kiss him, which pissed off Python's boyfriend. When the boyfriend told Alex about this, Alex was furious and chewed Cassander out, saying that Cassander and people like him were the reason why it isn't allowable even to fall in love with anybody. And I have a note here. Ask Mare her interpretation on this. Say that all again? That didn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. That's what I thought, too. So in the story, Cassander forced a guy named Python to kiss him. And this pissed off Python's boyfriend. The boyfriend told Alex about it. And Alex was furious and chewed out Cassander, saying that Cassander and people like him were the reason why, quote, it isn't even allowable to fall in love in, with anybody. I don't know. Okay, so the next year's 323, and this uh, brings us to a very important but relatively unknown event, even among modern scholars. On or around June 10th of 323, Alexander the Great, King of Macedon, died. As Granger puts it, quote, at his court at Babylon at the time were three of Antipater's sons. Cassander, the eldest, who had arrived recently, and Philip and Euleos, who were pages of the king, the latter being his cupbearer and taster. This became one of the bases for the accusation that Alexander had been murdered by poisoning. So let's revisit that nugget of a rumor. Did Cassander poison Alex? Here are what the ancient sources say. According to Diodorus, 
Antipater didn't get along with Alex's mom, Olympias, which we know to be true. Eventually, the feud with Olympias got so bad that Antipater was afraid that he was going to be assassinated by Alex. Thus, Antipater supposedly tried to beat Alex to the punch by sending one of his sons, a few of his sons, including Cassander, to Alex's court. One of those sons, possibly Cassander, was serving as Alex's wine pourer, his cup boy, and poisoned the king. It seems Diodorus didn't buy this because he indirectly relates this story as something that, quote, other historians claimed, therefore separating himself from the account. The Roman historian Vitruvius elaborates on this, saying that the poison in question was actually water from the mountains of southern Greece called the Water of Styx, S-T-Y-X. Apparently the water is extremely cold, cannot be held by silver, brass, or iron as it causes them to burst open, but can only be contained inside the hoof of a mule. Supposedly, according to Vitruvius, it wasn't Cassander, but his brother, Euleus, who carried the poison and administered it to Alex. Valerius Maximus doesn't give any explanation, but simply says that many believe that Antipater sent Cassander to poison Alex. Curtius Rufus, one of our more famous sources on Alexander, suggests that Antipater indeed had fallen afoul of Alexander and then sent his son Cassander, carrying the poisonous Stygian water in a horse's hoof. Rufus goes on to say that Cassander, upon arriving in Babylon, gave the poison to his brother, Yolas, the cupbearer who then put the poison in Alex's wine. Pliny the Elder tells the same story as Vitruvius, but only says that Antipater sent the poison, no mention of the carrier. And our old boy Plutarch tells the exact same story as everyone else above, especially regarding the deathly cold Stygian water. But Plutarch adds the detail that Aristotle was possibly in on it and convinced Antipater to do it. In the end, Plutarch doesn't buy it, outright states that most writers don't believe it. But unlike the other historians, Plutarch actually cites some sources for the story, giving it more credence than hearsay. So I just threw a lot of names at you there. But that's the the historiography around the controversy. We all know about the nonsensical chaos that followed Alexander's death, so we'll spare you on the details If you want to know more, however, we proudly direct you to one of our episodes on Perdiccas and Alexander's half-brother, Philip III Arhidaeus. Because of his late arrival and the fact that he hadn't participated in the campaigns, Cassander really played no part in the settlement of Alexander's empire. In fact, Granger outright states that Cassander was ignored. He likely stayed, however, so that he could convey the decision and news of whatever the settlement would be to his dad back in Macedon. And indeed, Antipater got some good news in the settlement. Alex's orders for Corteros to replace Antipater were cancelled, and Antipater's command in Macedon was maintained. Furthermore, when Cassander, and possibly his two brothers, set out to return to Macedon in the summer of 323, he also brought news that Perdiccas wanted to marry his sister, Antipater's daughter, Nikaya. So, for the next two years, from 323 to 321, we actually don't know what Cassander was doing. He kind of falls off the map. We do, however, know full well what transpired during this time. Again, go check our episodes on Perdiccas, Arhidaeus, and Antipater himself for more information on this. But, suffice to say, one of Alexander's top generals, Perdiccas, took over as commander of the empire and regent for the two new kings, the co-kings, Alex's half-brother, Philip III Arhidaeus, and Alex's own son, Alexander IV, whom we call Baby Alex. Well, things didn't work out for Perdiccas. By 321, he couldn't keep control of the other commanders and satraps, that is, the governors, and he eventually got pulled into a civil war against the coalition of Ptolemy, Antipater, Craterus, and Antigonus, 
who all opposed Perdiccas. And pretty soon, Perdiccas was dead. He got a lot of his men eaten by crocodiles while attempting to cross the Nile, and then he got assassinated by Stabby Stabby. Meanwhile, Antipater was hot on the trail and attacking Perdiccas, and he had made it to a place called Triparadesos in modern-day Lebanon by the time that he had heard about Perdiccas's death. According to Granger, Cassander accompanied his father on this trip. Very likely at this, at this time, then, Cassander was handling a lot of his father's diplomatic tasks, since Antipater was getting up there in his age, being in his late 70s. The trip ended up being a giant win for Antipater, since at the subsequent Treaty of Triparadesos, Antipater was named the new commander of the empire and regent of the kings. While there, while there, Antipater tried to secure alliances by marrying off all his daughters, two of whom were widows, to his most powerful partners. Now, we've mentioned some of Antipater's daughters before, but here we're really kind of going into the detail of what happened to these poor women, in the sense that they, they had multiple husbands. <laughs> oh, yeah. Phila, one of Antipater's daughters, had previously been married to another of Alexander's bodyguards, a guy named Balakrus, who died in battle in 323, and then she was married to Croteros, with whom she had a son. After Kateros died, she was then married to Demetrius, the son of Antigonus the One-Eyed, even though he was only 17 at the time and she was in her 30s. Antipater's next daughter, Nicaiah, was supposedly married to Perdiccas, but he had repudiated this marriage, so the legitimacy of their union is in question. She was then married off to Lysimachus, another of Alexander's bodyguards, who was currently the satrap of Thrace, part of modern-day Bulgaria. Lastly, his youngest daughter, Eurydice, the only one who wasn't a widow, was married to Ptolemy in Egypt. But what about Cassander, you may ask? Well, by this time around 321, Cassander would have been about 35 years old, and he was still unmarried. According to Granger, aside from just age, Macedonian men could only get married after they could afford to set up their own households. And it may actually be the case that Antipater's unusually long life was actually preventing Cassander from doing this. So basically, dear old dad wouldn't kick off, and that was preventing Cassander from transitioning to that final stage of adulthood. Poor boy. But Cassander did at least get a job in the negotiations at Triparadesis. Among the different settlements of the Empire, our big boy from the last episode, Antigonus the One-Eyed, requested the task of dealing with the remaining ex-Perdicans up there in Anatolia, most notably our best boy and precious one, Eumenes. Hey, Meredith. Yes. What's Anatolia? Part of Turkey. Modern, yeah, most of modern-day Turkey. <laughs> I'm always going to quiz you. As we know, also, Antigonus got the job and was appointed as the general, or strategos, over all of Asia. But there was a caveat. Cassander was appointed to be Antigonus's second-in-command and his cavalry commander, a position called a Kiliarch. There doesn't seem to be any secret that the intention of this appointment was explicitly so that Cassander could keep an eye on Antigonus, which suggested that Antipater at least had some concerns about how much he could trust Antigonus. As for Antigonus himself, he didn't seem to care much at first, which was good, but his cooperation with Cassander did not last long, and both men quickly began to distrust one another. Antigonus didn't trust Cassander, and didn't like him acting as a spy for his dad. In turn, Cassander didn't trust Antigonus, and thought he was dragging his heels and dealing with Eumenes. By the beginning of 320 then, Cassander was already back home at Macedon, so that he could hang out with his dear old, old dad, who still wasn't dead. 
But as it would turn out, Antipater, in fact, had less than a year to live. Bringing us to 319. By mid-319, Antipater was very sick, the kind of sickness that comes with extremely old age and no modern medical technology. At this point, Plutarch explicitly states that, due to his father's illness, Cassander had assumed control of affairs in Macedon. As an example of this, Cassander claimed to have found out that an Athenian politician, Demodes, had previously sent letters to Perdiccas, asking him to come over and take over Macedon and calling Antipater old and rotten. Well, uh, Cassander summoned Demodes to Macedon. Demodes, not suspecting anything, was happy to go up to Macedon and even took his own son, Demios, with him. I love these guys' names. As soon as Demodes and Demios arrived in Macedon. <laughs> <laughs> you remember that commercial from like back in the like early 2000s? It was a guy who was getting a, a job interview, and he was like, I think I'm a great addition to this co- company, Mr. Dumbass. I'm, I'm, the, I'm dumbass material, and I've really admired dumbasses like you for a while. So what do you think? Would you hire me to work at Dumbass and Dumbass, Mr. Dumbass? And the guy leans forward, and he's like, the name is Dumas. <clears throat> no, I yeah. don't I don't recall that. Well, that's kind of what I'm getting here. Demides took Demidas. his son, Demias, to Macedon with him. Well, as soon as Demides and Demias arrived in Macedon, Cassander immediately arrested both of them. Then he slaughtered Demias, the son, who was apparently standing so close to his dad, Demides, at the time, that the blood splattered all over his son, his dad's robes. Then Cassander interrogated and possibly tortured Demides for a while before finally executing him. Harsh. Mm, not the most productive no. meeting. But the message there is Cassander don't play. No. But there's more here. Later that year, unfortunately, the unthinkable happened. At the ripe old age of 81, Antipater finally kicked the bucket. And we know what happened next, as we've covered it in nearly every episode after Antipater. I will beg everyone's patience, but I'm going to try to get through it fast. Um, Cassander assumed naturally that he'd be getting his dad's job, but alas, life had yet another curveball to throw at him. Instead, Antipater chose to bypass his son Cassander and grant the regency and control of the empire to the most mediocre man ever existed, Polyparacon. Again, this is something we covered ad nauseum, so I don't want to focus on it unduly here. We know what happened with the succession crisis, that is, Cassandra was passed over by Antipater. But we haven't really explored the why. Why would Antipater skip over his son, Cassander? Ancient authors thought it was weird, too. Everybody assumed that Cassandra would inherit his father's position. So as much as we can see, let's consider not only some of Antipater's possible reasons for skipping over Cassandra but also the counter-arguments. For one thing, succession based on heredity was the assumption. Furthermore, Cassander believed that he was capable of the position and that he, quote, had already given sufficient proof of his ability and courage. According to Granger, Cassander's execution of Demides and his son Demias are a sign that Cassander was likely getting ready to take over in the sense that he was acting like he was already in charge. So he was, clearly he was expecting to be in charge. We will recall, however, that Cassandra was also still unmarried, likely because his dad was still clinging to life at the time. So Cassandra may have been hindered in his progress to the social perception of adulthood. 
There was even some speculation that Cassander had not completed a rite of passage for a young man in Macedon of going out on a grand hunt and bringing back a stag or some other kill. This is based on the fact that once Antipater passed over Cassander, Cassander immediately went on a big hunting trip. I was about to say there's no time for these uh, leisure trips in, in this aftermath of war, but it sounds like the answer was like, okay, I'm going to go kill a hundred deer. Yes, I, I definitely get a temper tantrum vibe. I was like, pass me over, I'll show you, Dad. Well, I mean, like, I'd be pretty ticked off if I was 35 years old. My life and career had maybe been on hold for the fact that my father wouldn't die. I mean, it's also interesting to learn that he did have some years of acting on behalf of his father. I've kind of had this idea when we've just heard his story on the periphery that he just never was ever doing really anything and therefore wouldn't have been qualified. But or it that he was doing a bad job of it somehow. Yeah, it was... but I mean, it doesn't seem that way. And also, too, having now gone through Polly Paracon's episode, like, we definitely can recognize there's nothing so fantastic about Polly Paracon that I, as Antipater, would say, that's the better choice. Right, so it does beg the question of what the hell was Antipater thinking? Like, there has to be a reason. I don't know, I just get the vibe it's got to be something about... I mean, Antipater is an older dude. I can understand he probably might look at all these young women snappers that were chomping at the bit for the Empire and just thought, let's give it to someone who's older and experienced. Maybe that was just his mentality. Maybe he should have spent more time with his son. Maybe he should have. Training him. Well, this is, you know, this is this is one of the things that inspired me for the intelligent speech conference paper. It was just like, here we had a situation where you had a living heir. You had someone who was ready, prime of his life, and look how that turned out. It's like, well, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Um, as I said, though, another thing to take into consideration is that Cassander had not accomplished anything on his own. Everything he had done up to that point was under the aegis of his dad. And that mattered in the ancient world because it's just the idea of, like, I won this big victory. I'm like, well, you were one of your dad's commanders, so he kind of was doing it. So nothing, Cassander had really nothing on his resume kind of thing, but not necessarily his fault. But as Granger points out, the fact that Cassander assumed hereditary succession may be the very reason he was passed over. This is because, aside from the monarchy, that's not how stuff worked in the administration of the Macedonian government. It would be obvious to anyone wanting to keep the empire together that basing the regency on inheritance was a recipe for tearing the empire apart. Lastly, Cassander's hasty and savage killing of Demides and Demios may have backfired. Instead of convincing Antipater of Cassander's capabilities as an administrator, Antipater may have seen his son's actions as excessive and cruel, not the behavior of the regent of the empire. In any case, we know what happened. Antipater did not give the regency to Cassander. Instead, he did give the regency to Polypericon, but he did appoint Cassander to be Polypericon's second-in-command. That's just gotta be such a smack in the face. Like, you're waiting all this time for your dad yeah. to finally kick the bucket, and then it's like, you get to be number two to somebody else who's proving to have the longevity of your father as well. Like, you know. Yeah, basically we have a situation of, like, when's it gonna be my turn? And I, I gotta be honest with you, I'm kind of feeling bad for Cassander about this. Well, unsurprisingly, Meredith, Cassander rejected this. Mm -hmm. And at this point, we're back to our normally scheduled narrative. We've already covered a lot of what happens next, so I'm going to try to go faster. So to review, Cassander rejects the appointment of Polypericon to the Regency. He pretends to be okay with it, though, 
and by pretending to go on some big hunting trip. Like, yeah, 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 I'm going to go on vacation, blah, blah, blah. In reality, his friends start encouraging, encouraging him to rebel against Polly immediately. Cassander indeed decides to do so and undermines Polyparicon from the start. To begin with, he sends some troops down into Attica, the region where Athens is, in order to secure control of Athens and its port city, the Piraeus. This brings us to early 318, when Cassander had to run to Asia Minor and establish an alliance against Polyparicon with the big bear himself, Antigonus the One-Eyed. And this, of course, marks the beginning of the Second War of the Diadochoi, which lasts from 318 to 316. Back in Macedon, Polyparicon was aware of what Cassander was up to and started scrambling to shore up his support in Macedon and Greece. In fact, Granger speculates that this may have been the time that the rumor of Cassander poisoning Alexander began to circulate, and that it was nothing more than anti-Cassandrian propaganda promoted by Polyparicon and Olympias. Oh yeah, by May, however, before Polyparicon could retake Athens, Cassander arrived with 35 warships and 4,000 soldiers which had been loaned to him by his new friend, Antigonus. Polyparicon tried to besiege Cassander in Athens, but he actually brought too big of an army, which you rarely hear of in ancient warfare, and had to split <laughs> his forces because of supply chain issues. Mm, that's where Eumenes' tactical genius would have come into play. Yeah, Eumenes could pull that off. Yeah, the administration would have been just perfect. He was like, Eumenes was like a MacGyver for the ancient world. He could do it. You give that man a paperclip and a piece of gum and he'll conquer an empire. Both Cassander and Polyparicon tried to consolidate their control over the Greek cities in the meantime. Neither side really accomplished anything at first, but by the end of 318 and the beginning of 317, it was clear that most Greek cities were willing to side with Cassander. I mean, we recall that Polyparicon was just pushing way too hard for a while. This brings us to 317. Now, as you and our dear listeners may recall, Meredith, the year 317 proved to be a wacky time in the history of Macedon, full of some ups and downs and reversals. To start, in early to mid-317, while Polyparicon was busy in southern Greece, Cassander actually snuck up behind him, ran into Macedon, conquered it, took a bunch of Polyparicon's elephants, lucky, mm -hmm. and then left again to go undo Polyparicon's control over southern Greece. After this, our best girl, Eurydice, who we will recall was the wife of Philip III Arhadias, Alexander's half-brother, decided to declare Cassander the new regent of the kings and commander of the entire Macedonian Empire, thus effectively firing Polyparicon. And here's where things would get a little sad. As we recall, as soon as Cassander had conquered and then left Macedon, Polyparicon and Olympias, the mother of Alexander the Great, assembled an army to retake Macedon from him. Eurydice, our certified best girl, sent a message for Cassander to come back, but instead of waiting to be rescued, Eurydice still assembled her own army and prepared to fight the combined forces of Polyparicon and Olympias. Hashtag feminism. Unfortunately, Eurydice's Macedonian troops refused to fight against Alexander the Great's own mother, as well as Alexander's son, the young Alex IV, who was with Polyparicon and Olympias. Thus, Eurydice's army defected and betrayed her. Soon, Eurydice and Arhadias were both captured by Olympias and Polyparicon, who then recaptured Macedon entirely. By December of 317, Olympias killed Arhadias and forced Eurydice to commit suicide. Le sad. But, 
As we've mentioned, while all of this was going on, Cassander had gone back down to southern Greece to try to undo all of Polypericon's previous efforts. So as you can see, Polypericon and Cassander's affairs are pretty much back and forth, back and forth situation. It's worth noting, however, that Cassander's march to the south was quite alarming to the Greeks in the area, and in fact scared the Spartans so much that they started to build a wall around their city, which they had never done before. Nevertheless, Cassander was in a strategically sticky situation. I can't believe I said that without stuttering. He was stuck in the Peloponnese, that big chunk of land in southern Greece, and now he needed to get back up to Macedon, but he was cut off. First, Polypericon's son, who we call Shifty Alex, was down near Athens with a small army. He was prepared to move to, towards the Isthmus of Corinth, the only land bridge between the Peloponnese and the rest of Greece, and he could block Cassander if he tried to cross over. Fortunately, Cassander's army was just big enough that he could punch through Shifty Alex's lines and pushed his way into southern Greece. But oh to knows, now the Aetolians are there, those redneck pirate Greeks. They had finally, they had decided to ally with Polypericon for some reason, and they went ahead and occupied the pass at Thermopylae, just like in the movie 300, and blocked the rest of Cassander's passage up to the north of Greece. Pretty bad, right? What's a Cassander to do? Throw down and fight? Run away? Well, I'll tell you what he did. Cassander commandeered boats from nearby cities and sailed north around Thermopylae, circumventing the Aetolians' entirety and landing behind them in Thessaly, right underneath Macedon. Bazinga. And now we're going to zoom in to the final showdown between Olympias and Cassander. I mentioned this in Polypericon's episode, but immediately after retaking Macedon and killing Eurydice and Arhidaeus in mid to late 317, Polypericon also took another army down south to chase after Cassander. Meanwhile, Olympios stayed in Macedon proper and began to secure her control over the kingdom. And by secure her control, I mean that she ruthlessly massacred her opponents. According to Diodorus Siculus, Olympias first killed one of Cassander's brothers, a guy named Nicanor, not Cassander's general from earlier, another guy. And then she desecrated the grave of another one of Cassander's brothers, Euleus. Supposedly, she dug up his grave and scattered his bones. Pretty heinous, right? So, can you guess why she did this? I mean, beyond just general hatred of the family? Well, Olympios claimed to be avenging the death of Alexander. Oh. And this may be where we see the origin of the rumor that Antipater gotcha. had ordered his sons to poison Because that would Alex. have been those yeah. two other brothers. Moving on, Olympios then selected 100 of the most prominent Macedonians who were friends of Cassander and slaughtered them all. These actions caused all the Macedonians to hate Olympios. Well, Happy New Year to 316. <laughs> Fast forward to early in the year, Cassander had managed to get to Thessaly in northern Greece, and he was poised to make his way back into Macedon. And this is where we get to see some of the genius of Cassander. First of all, blocking his way into Macedon was Polypericon with the main army at a place called Perhybia in northern Thessaly, right at the border to Macedon. Second, Olympias also sent ahead some advanced forces to seize all the other little mountain passages and stuff into Macedon from Thessaly. In response to this, Cassander split his forces. He sent one army under a general named Kalos to keep Polypericon busy. Another army, commanded by a guy named Danias, rushed ahead and secured all those other passages in Macedon before Olympias' troops could do it. 
Thus, Cassander was able to avoid fighting Polypericon entirely, and able to move into Macedon almost completely unopposed. When Olympias heard about this, she gave command of the war against Cassander to another general named Aristonous, and then she abandoned the Macedonian capital at Pella and went southeast to the coastal city of Pydna. Along with her, Olympias took a lot of her supporters, who Diodorus says were, for the most part, useless in the war, along with other relatives. She did take a substantial military force also, including some cavalry, soldiers who served her at the Macedonian court, and the remaining elephants she had left. Lastly, Olympias took the royal family with her to Pydna, including the young king, baby Alex, his mommy, Roxanne, and one of the remaining daughters of Philip II, named Thessalonica. Remember her, she's going to be important later. Well, she hasn't popped up anywhere else. Yeah, well, she's about to. Mm. And also a lady named Deidamea, the daughter of the king of Epirus, Olympias' homeland, who was also probably intended to be the uh, baby Alex's future wife. And my future wife. Aww. Oh, hi, Mark. So it's a pretty big crew that Olympias... <clears throat> so I don't go through puberty again. So it's a, yeah, it's a pretty big <laughs> crew that Olympias had taken with her to Pydna. So she's prepared for everything, right? I got the court. I got some troops. I got the royal family. Got some of them elephants. Just one problem. If someone were to besiege Pydna, there weren't enough supplies or food for such a large crowd. Nevertheless, even though Olympias knew the risks, she decided to go along to Pydna anyway, because she hoped that her supporters would be able to rescue her by sea. So I guess she really needs to hope that no one manages to lay siege to Pydna. So, around January or February of 316, Olympias's worst nightmare happened. Cassander laid siege to Pydna. And he really didn't have to try that hard either. On the coast, Granger said that the siege of Pydna was like unlikely more than a fairly loose blockade. Cassander requisitioned some ships to plug up the coastline to prevent Olympias from escaping and from anyone else from coming to rescue her, a detail that comes becomes relevant later. On the land side, however, according to Diodorus, Cassander surrounded the city with a wall and then gathered artillery and siege engines, intending to take the city by force. But hey! Olympias still had allies in the field. Remember she left this uh, general named Aristonous in command of the Macedonian army, and he, for some reason, had gone east to the city of Amphipolis. <laughs> My theory is that he was possibly intending to send a fleet to rescue Olympias, since Amphipolis was also near the coast. On the other hand, the Macedonian capital of Pella was still held by another general, Monimos, who stubbornly remained loyal to Olympias. Also, a new army was on the way to Macedon from Epirus, Olympias' homeland, led by the Epirot king, Iacides, who was Olympias' cousin. On top of it all, Polypericon was still down there, and he actually had the bigger army. Oh, and the Aetolians are still down there in central Greece, just chilling. So once more, what's a Cassander to do? Well, he split his forces again. He sent another commander, Atarhias, to seize the routes into Macedon before the Epirots could arrive. The same move Olympias tried to pull previously, but this time Cassander did it right. Uh, luckily for Cassander, most of the Epirots didn't even want to fight in this war. And there was a mutiny in the army, 
and the entire kingdom of Epirus rebelled against their king, Iacades, declared him to be an exile, then switched sides and made an alliance with Cassander. So there's one. Mm-hmm. Monimos was isolated in Pella and couldn't do anything. Mm. There's two. Aristonous, the guy who went to Amphipolis, won a small victory over a detachment of Cassander's army near Amphipolis, but he wasn't strong enough to link up with Monimos or rescue Olympios. So that's three. The Aetolians down in central Greece showed no desire to do anything. <laughs> so, so that's four. Then there was Polypercon. You may recall that Cassander had initially sent one of his generals, Kalos, with a small force to keep Poly busy. Well, Kalos decided not to choose violence. Instead, he bribed almost all of Polypercon's army and convinced them to switch sides so that Polypercon was left with only a small force of his most loyal troops and was absolutely unable to do anything. Consequently, Poly took his remaining troops down into Greece linked up with that ex-king Iacades in what forces he had left, and sought refuge with the Aetolians. Kind of like a loser's club. By now, it's the spring of 316, and Olympias was all alone. But we'll be right back after these messages. Hey there, folks. Dustin here. Right now, Meredith has skipped town to go see some family, and, as usual, the refrigerator is barren. Most of the time, this would leave me with two options. Either I go hunt for food in the wild, like an animal, or I go to the grocery store, like an animal. But today, I have another option, which just so happens to be our sponsor for this episode. It's an exciting new meal delivery service called Trash Pidna. You know... During the pandemic lockdown, millions of people around the world availed themselves of the benefits and convenience of meal delivery services. But, as awesome as a lot of these services are, some of them had unavoidable hiccups. First, there's delivery. All these companies promise prompt delivery, but what happens when there are delays? Then you have a room full of hungry people staring at each other, and I've seen that horror movie. And if the package is late, are the ingredients still going to be fresh? I mean, those little ice packs do have limits. Plus, they don't taste that good when they melt, right? Trash Pidna aims to address all these hindrances while still bringing you the most resilient, low-maintenance, and questionably healthy food that'll never be on the market. And that's weird. At a price you'll never live to regret. What? Um. <clears throat> okay, um. To start, let's talk delivery. Trash Pidna guarantees that your package will arrive. Not on time, because they don't promise a delivery time. That way, when everyone is gathered around the table asking you where dinner is, you can tell them that good things come to those who wait. And when it does arrive, oh boy, you're in for a surprise. Trash Pidna provides you with the most unorthodox cuisine suitable for only the hardiest Macedonian and Greek soldiers. And don't worry about freshness or ingredients spoiling in transit, because Trash Pidna guarantees that all the food in your package is already rotten. Wait a minute. Um, <clears throat> everything in Trash Pidna tastes like it's been laying out in the hot sun for three days. Because it has! And just look at these meal choices. Okay. First, there's sawdust trail mix. Ridiculously high in fiber, but not much else. Then there's Spartan Black Broth. 
made with boiled pork meat, salt, vinegar, blood, and nothing else. <clears throat> um, not enough for you? Let's cut corners? How about a cup of bitter vetch? It's a disgustingly bitter bean, but it's good enough for cows to eat. So, you know, if the cow eats the bean and you eat the cow, then don't you eat the bean anyway? So cut out the middleman and go straight for the bean, because we ain't got no cow. Okay. So yeah, Trash Pidna doesn't offer any steaks to eat, but how about weak old pack mule? I mean, meat is meat, am I right? Oh, I can do this. I can do this. <clears throat> and wait, there's more. Oh, no. is that cheese or packing material? <clears throat> well, to be human is to be constantly learning. And is that something moving in there? Oh, God, I can't. Stop asking questions that you don't want answers to. Don't you want to eat? <sighs> oh, man. Like, oh, again, we need the money. We need the money. Lastly, Trash Pidna is proud to suggest their infamous Pidna pie, made with mysterious ingredients that taste so good they make you think of that person you used to see every day but mysteriously disappeared last week. I can't do this anymore. I can't. I can't. Finish this. Okay. <clears throat> so order Trash Pitna today. And don't come at me complaining how you don't like it, because I guess you should have cooked something at home then. And we're back. As we mentioned, Olympias took a large garrison and the entire royal court with her to Pitna. But not enough supplies to withstand a long siege. Unfortunately, by this point, Cassander had besieged Pydna for around a few months, and supplies were, in fact, running low inside the city. So get ready, because Diodorus gives us a graphic description of what was going on inside. And if you are averse to gore, and even some depictions of eating animals, you may want to skip ahead by 30 seconds. You see, Cassander's siege had caused a famine inside Pydna. Diodorus says that the soldiers in the city only received five coiny case of dry grain per month. Now, don't worry, I did some calculations and research on this. This unit of measurement, the coinix, was equivalent, depending on the source, roughly to about one liter or one quart. Five coiny case, then, comes out to five quarts or around 1.25 gallons or 4.7 liters, depending on your preference. But... Spread out across a full month, this means the soldiers only got about 5.3 ounces or 157 milliliters of grain per day. So imagine that. I mean, that's like a coffee cup of grain a day. That's it. Consequently, many of them starved to death. For the animals, however, the situation was worse. So you may want to skip ahead if you don't want to hear this. The elephants were fed sawdust, mm. and no surprise, a lot of them died from starvation or at least malnutrition. The pack animals were slaughtered for food. Now that the horses were gone... No, you mean the horses? Yeah. God dang it. And I guess if I didn't say that, let me just go ahead and specify it, the horses were killed too. Now that the horses were gone, any of those soldiers who were part, formerly of the cavalry, weren't given any food at all, because they were expendable. 
Mm. and most of them starve to death. Diodorus specifies that some of the non-Greeks in the city, with, quote, their natural needs overcoming their scruples, succumbed to cannibalism and started eating the corpses of those that had starved. Pretty soon, bodies were piling up in Pydna. The soldiers that remained alive tried to bury some of the dead, but eventually they just started throwing the bodies outside of the city wall. Overall, Diodorus says that the sight and smell of the rotting corpses in the city was horrible and unbearable. Not only, and I'm quoting Diodorus here for hashtag misogyny, hashtag feminism, to quote, ladies who were part of the queen's court and addicted to luxury, but also to those of the soldiers who were habituated to hardship. As the spring continued on, things got worse day to day in the city, to the point that the remaining soldiers in the city appealed to Olympias to let them leave. For her part, Olympias, since she could not feed them or break the siege, actually agreed to let them go. When the soldiers went over to Cassander, he treated them well and used them as a PR statement to convince everyone else in Macedon to abandon Olympias' cause. And yet, Olympias herself still refused to surrender. She did, however, try to escape. Our old boy Polypericon tried to send a ship to rescue Olympias and those in the royal court in the middle of the night, but Cassander found out about it and intercepted the ship. Finally then, with no hope of victory or escape, Olympias tried to open negotiations with Cassander. But Cassander demanded nothing short of her unconditional surrender, but he did promise to spare her life. Olympias accepted and surrendered. Thus, Cassander had won. Now what? Well, things didn't turn out well for Olympias. First, Cassander organized a trial of sorts. He invited all the relatives of people that Olympias had killed to come forward and make formal accusations against her in front of a general assembly of the Macedonian people. Olympias, however, was not even present at the trial herself and seems to have been on house arrest. She was still in the royal house and had no one to speak in her defense. Nevertheless, the Macedonian people condemned her to death. Now, Cassander actually didn't want a public execution. He actually tried to convince Olympias to try and escape into exile. But, aha, this was a trick, because he was planning on assassinating her while she was on the run. Olympias, possibly smelling a trick, refused to escape but instead demanded to make her case to the Macedonian public. This is kind of what you were telling me about last night. This scared Cassander because he knew how fickle the Macedonians could be. He was afraid that if Olympias made a public appearance, she would convince the Macedonian people to change their mind. She was, after all, the wife of Philip II and mother of Alexander the Great. The common people did seem to love her. Instead, Cassander sent 200 soldiers to the royal chambers with orders to kill Olympias on sight. And yet, even here, after they broke into the royal house, as soon as the soldiers came across Olympias, they were, quote, overawed by her exalted rank, and they withdrew with their task unfulfilled. But, on the other hand, the relatives of the people Olympias had killed did not have such scruples, and they killed Olympias without hesitation. Olympias herself, however, quote, uttered no ignoble or womanish plea. Hashtag sexism. Thus, in 316 then, according to Diodorus, quote, was the end of Olympias, who had attained to the highest dignity of the women of her day, having been daughter of Neoptolemus, king of the Epirots, and also wife of Philip, 
who was the mightiest of all who down to his time had ruled in Europe, and mother of Alexander, whose deeds were the greatest and most glorious. And with that, Cassander is the sole ruler of Macedon. With Olympias out of the way, Cassander immediately set out to consolidate his power. Do you remember who I told you that Olympias had with her at Pydna? Everybody. Uh, but yeah, more, more importantly, Roxana and uh, Alex for Baby Alex. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so we got three pe- groups of people to deal with here. Baby Alex IV and his mom, Roxana. And there was also Thessalonica, one of Alexander the Great's half-sisters. And Daedamea, the daughter of the former king of Epirus and the fiancé to Baby Alex. Well, let's go in reverse order. First, we don't know what happened to Daedamea after the fall of Pydna. We do know that she survived since she becomes quite important in Demetrius's episode. But she falls off the historical record for about 10 years after 316. Pops back up. Yeah. So, moving on. Thessalonica. Here was perhaps one of the last remaining children of Philip II. I think Cleopatra is still out there. Well, what do you think Cassandra did? Nicked her. Nope. Married her. He married her. There exactly. we go. Yeah, yeah, go. Yay. According to Diodorus, this was because Cassander now began to embrace in his hopes the Macedonian kingdom and desired to establish a connection with the royal house. As for baby Alex and his mom, Roxanne, Cassander was technically the regent now and commander of the whole empire. Cassander wanted to kill him, but he thought it was best to wait and see how the Macedonian people reacted to the death of Olympias. Instead, then, as we well know, Cassander locked them up in prison at the city of Amphipolis. So clearly, Cassander is trying to be mindful of his public image in Macedon. To that end, he then goes on a PR campaign of sorts in order to endear the people to him. Indeed, building on his marriage to Thessalonica, it became clear that Cassander's PR campaign was a clear attempt to establish himself as the next legitimate king of Macedon. Well, first he founded a new city which, of course, he named after himself, Cassandrea. Uh, Part of the citizens of this new town were the former inhabitants of Olynthos, a city that Philip had destroyed over 30 years ago. Very quickly, this became the strongest city in Macedon, according to Diodorus. Second, as a way to undo the crimes of Olympias, Cassander gave royal burials to Arhidaeus and Eurydice, whom Olympias had killed, but also Eurydice's mom, Kinane who was another daughter of Philip II. Third, at the end of 316 and the beginning of 315, Cassander started building more cities. I wonder if you can pick up a theme in what Cassander's trying to do here. The first city, as we said, he named after himself, Cassandrea. The next city isn't really a new settlement. In early 315, Cassander rebuilt the city of Thebes. Yeah, the sources explicitly suggest that Cassander, remember it now, don't you, yeah, is rebuilding Thebes as a way to distance himself from the memory of Alexander or to set himself up as the anti-Alexander. Kind of like, look at me, I rebuilt the city that Alexander destroyed. The third city was named after his wife, Thessalonica. So what do you think little Cass- Cassie's trying to do here? Aw, you read my mind. I was already calling him Cassie in my notes. I mean, I think he's just trying to... Set himself up as a bringer of life and prosperity and expansion. Rebuild Macedon after your past few rulers were running off to other areas. Moving along, 
Continuing into 315, as we may recall from Antigonus's episode, the big man's successes against Eumenes had left him with a huge swath of territory, which garnered the envy, or fear, of his previous allies, Cassander, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. Later that year, all three men, joined also by a new ally, Lysimachus, gave a series of demands to Antigonus that he distribute some of the spoils of his new conquests. Ptolemy demanded Syria. Babylonia was to go to Seleucus. Lysimachus wanted Phrygia, which is west-central Anatolia. Lastly, and pertinent to us today, Cassander was to receive Lycia and Cappadocia, basically southwest and central Anatolia. Antigonus promptly rejected the demands and told his former allies to get ready for war. Which they did! <clears throat> God, I'm going in and out of puberty tonight. Which they did. Everyone got ready to throw down. Thus began the Third War of the Diadochoi, which ran from 315 to 311. We're not going to cover the vast majority of this conflict, since we already did it in uh, Ant Antigonus's episode. But today, we want to focus mainly on the European side of the war, Cassander's part. To start off, a great deal of Antigonus's effort in the war, it seems, was actually to keep Cassander at bay, to keep him in Macedon. And for good measure, this is also when he sent... Uh, 1,000 talents of gold to Polypericon in Greece for the purpose of raising an army and continuing the fight against Cassander. Thereafter, Cassander had to move down into Greece and fight Polypericon, uh, but nothing really comes from this. And Cassander effectively consolidates his position and just goes back into Macedon. Meanwhile, Antigonus had by this time moved to the Phoenician city of Old Tyre, uh, the old, older part of the city that used to be on the mainland, where he issued a public condemnation of Cassander. And I'm going to quote Diodorus Siculus in full here. Calling a general assembly of the soldiers and of the aliens who were dwelling there, he laid charges against Cassander, bringing forward the murder of Olympios and the treatment of Roxana and the king. Moreover, he said that Cassander had married Thessalonica by force and was clearly trying to establish his own claim to the Macedonian throne, and also that, although the Olynthians were very bitter enemies of the Macedonians, Cassander had re-established them in a city called by his own name, and had rebuilt Thebes, which had been raised by the Macedonians. When the crowd showed that it shared his wrath, he introduced a decree according to the terms of which it was voted that Cassander was to be an enemy, unless he destroyed these cities again released the king and his mother Roxana from imprisonment, and restored them to the Macedonians, and, in general, yielded obedience to Antigonus, the duly established general who had succeeded to the guardianship of the throne. It was also stated that all the Greeks were free, not subject to foreign garrisons, and autonomous. When the soldiers had voted in favor of these measures, Antigonus sent men in every direction to carry the decree, for he believed that, through their hope of freedom, he would gain the Greeks as eager participants with him in the war, and that the generals and satraps in the upper satrapies, who had suspected that he was determined to depose the kings who inherited from Alexander, would, if he publicly took upon himself the war in their behalf, all would change their minds and promptly obey his orders. So, later in the year... When Polypericon's son, Shifty Alex, started making moves again, Cassander finally succeeded in convincing him to switch sides, betraying not only his father, but also Antigonus. In return, Cassander 
declared Shifty Alex to be commander of the Peloponnese, that southern chunk of Greece, and gave him command of an army and high honors. For the purposes of expediency, now we can zoom through the next four years of the war, from 314 to 311. Put simply, Cassander spent the next few years engaged in constant warfare with the Epirots in the west, the Illyrians in the northwest, the Greeks in the south, and even some minor forays into Asia Minor, the western coast of Anatolia. During this time, he has an equal share of ups and downs. Lots of victories, lots of setbacks. On the one hand, by the time 311 rolled around, Cassander was firmly in control of Macedon and had a strong presence still in Greece. On the other hand, he had effectively been contained in Europe and kept out of Asia by Antigonus, which is all Antigonus ever wanted. In mid-311, then, a great new opportunity presented itself to Cassander that gave him the opportunity to consolidate his position in Macedon when Antigonus agreed to a peace treaty with the coalition. As is usual, let's quote Diodorus Siculus' account of the peace treaty in full. Quote, While these held office, Cassander, Ptolemy, and Lysimachus came to terms with Antigonus and made a treaty. In this it was provided that Cassander be general of Europe until Alexander, the son of Roxanne, should come of age, that Lysimachus rule Thrace, that Ptolemy rule Egypt and the cities adjacent thereto in Libya and Arabia that Antigonus have first place in all Asia, and that the Greeks be autonomous. However, they did not abide by these agreements, but each of them, putting forward plausible excuses, kept seeking to increase his own power. The next year in 310, Cassander took the opportunity now to get rid of a nagging potential threat to his power, baby Alex. Hmm. This whole time, we will recall the son of Alexander the Great had been kept under guard. By 311, unfortunately, people in Macedon began to say that baby Alex was getting old enough to take the throne and become king. This would mean that Cassander would lose all of his authority as the regent and ruler of Macedon, and we can't let that happen, can we? So, Cassander decided that the best thing to do would be to order the execution of both baby Alex and his mom, Roxanne. Even though there was supposedly an effort to hide this act, word seems to have spread far and wide because Diodorus states that all the major rulers at the time, Cassander himself and also Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Antigonus, were relieved to hear that baby Alex was dead. So clearly it got, along, it got around somehow. As Diodorus says, Henceforth, there being no longer anyone to inherit the realm, each of those who had rule over nations or cities entertained hopes of royal power and held the territory that had been placed under his authority, as if it were a kingdom won by the spear. The next year, in 309, Cassander continued eliminating possible threats to his power. Although you may have forgotten, because everyone else certainly did, Polypericon was still alive. <laughs> As we may recall, Polypericon just happened to come across a young man reported to be the long-lost illegitimate son of Alexander the Great, Heracles. After organizing a formidable army, Polypericon marched into Macedon with Heracles by his side. And instead of risking a tumble, Cassander decided instead to make peace with Polypericon. And he even offered him a job on one condition. Kill that kid. Kill that kid. Polypericon had to kill Heracles, which he did. And in that way, the last potential claimant to Alexander's throne was dead. 
We don't have much information for what Cassander was doing for the next few years, from 309 to 307. From what we can tell, however, he was on the defensive still. The focus seemed to be on maintaining his position in Macedon and trying to keep hold over Greece. Cassander's overall plan, it seemed, was to use diplomacy as often as he could instead of risking his troops in battle. There were a few barbarian invasions and even a brief war with Ptolemy in southern Greece, and we will recall that he used diplomacy again to get rid of Polypericon's threat, but all of these were handled very efficiently through diplomatic means. This changed, however, in June of 307, when Demetrius, the son of Antigonus the One-Eyed, sailed into the Piraeus, the port city of Athens, and kicked out Cassander's garrison. Antigonus had recently thrown in the towel in the, his Babylonian war against Seleucus. This freed up a lot of resources, which he used to capitalize on the weakness of Cassander's position in Greece. This was all part of Antigonus's newfangled Freedom of the Greeks rally cry. And it seems to have worked. The Athenians welcomed the arrival of Demetrius. And Demetrius himself followed up this victory by kicking out another of Cassander's garrisons in a city called Megara. This began a war between Cassander and Athens, who were now allied with Demetrius and Antigonus, which lasted for the next four years. So, on to 306! As we saw in our previous episode on Antigonus, we know that something happened that year which changed the Hellenistic world completely. In mid-306, Antigonus declared himself king, with his son Demetrius as co-king. We know this was a huge development because this was the nail in the coffin for any semblance of the survival of Alexander's empire. That is, Alexander's empire was gone. It was now separate kingdoms fighting for the whole. No more pretense. But now we have the chance to see how this announcement reverberated throughout the other territories. The sources are pretty unanimous that all the other major commanders immediately called themselves kings as well. For most, it seems that they did not want to appear to be lesser or subordinate to Antigonus in any way. Kind of like, if I can't keep calling myself a general or a governor while this guy is calling himself a king. There is some evidence, however, that Lil Cassie hesitated or delayed a bit in declaring himself king of Macedon. Uh, we have three ways that this is described. Some historical sources just generally say that all the commanders took the royal title or they list them all by name. That is, Ptolemy, Seleucus, Lysimachus, and Cassander. Others mention specific rulers, but they leave Cassander out of the list. A third category is Plutarch, where he alone specifically stated that Cassander did not call himself king immediately, even though the other kings referred to him as king. So he hesitated, he put it off for a while, but it is also the case that later sources, like from a few years later, all refer to him as King Al King Cassander, King Cassander. So he took the royal title, definitely, but he just kind of put it off for a while. I would imagine it's because of the any bad PR associated with him killing Olympias and baby Alex. So let's take this into 304. Cassander did try to retake Athens over the next few years, but he was unsuccessful. And unfortunately, things only got worse for him in that regard. And um, I think you may hate this too, Meredith. Or it may be a joke to you. I don't know. Here we go. You ready? Two years later, in 302, Demetrius and Antigonus officially reformed the long-defunct League of Corinth. It's the that was a stupidest thing. <laughs> originally established by Philip II over 30 years ago. We will leave the details of that for Demetrius's episode, but suffice to say... 
Cassandra did not like this. Mm -hmm. I don't like it either. And when we cover Demetrius, we can skip it again. Okay. (laughs) In fact, it seems to have scared Cassander and convinced him to open negotiations with Antigonus. So Cassander didn't like the answer he got. Antigonus had no interest in negotiating. He demanded nothing less than Cassander's unconditional surrender. Cassander, of course, rejected that. He was in a bad place, but not that bad of a place. And he's not going to roll over without question. Instead, Cassander reached out to his old allies, Lysimachus and Thrace, modern-day Bulgaria, Ptolemy in Egypt, and Seleucus in Babylon and Persia. Cassander suggested that they get the old band back together. They should reunite their previous coalition and knock out Antigonus for good. Now, to be clear, except for maybe a few years, Antigonus had never really stopped fighting his neighbors. Instead, according to the historian Justin, it was more so the case that Antigonus was fighting all the other kings simultaneously, but they weren't coordinating their efforts. As Justin puts it, Each regarded the war not as the common concern of all, but as merely affecting himself, and all were unwilling to give assistance to one another, as if victory would be only for one and not for all of them. The difference now, obviously, was that everyone decided, for the first time, to work together towards the common goal of eliminating Antigonus once and for all. Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus directly took part in the campaigns in Syria and Anatolia. Cassander, on the other hand, stayed back and resumed operations against Demetrius in Greece. He did, however, loan some troops to Lysimachus for the war effort against Antigonus. Meanwhile, Demetrius and Cassander squared away in Thessaly, northern Greece, for a while. Cassander fortified his positions to prevent Demetrius' advance by land, but Demetrius in turn used his massive navy to hop around the coast and capture key cities. And indeed, he started making some progress against Cassander. Lucky for Cassander then, later in 302, Demetrius received an urgent call from his dad, Antigonus, requesting that he come back to Anatolia immediately and reinforce Antigonus' armies. And like a dutiful son, Demetrius immediately complied, made a hasty, insincere truce with Cassander, and went to help his dad. Taking us into 301, we know what happened from here. Antigonus was soon defeated and killed by the combined forces of Seleucus and Lysimachus at the Battle of Ipsos. Demetrius escaped, as we know, and his story will continue in his own episode. But what's Cassander doing in the meantime? Turns out we don't really know. After the Battle of Ipsos, the sources say that all the kings divided up Antigonus' kingdom, but no one mentions Cassander taking any of the territories which would make sense as he was probably content with consolidating his hold over Macedon. The next time Cassander actually even shows up in a historical source is 299, when an Athenian inscription simply refers to King Cassander in Macedon. Apparently at some point in early 298, Cassander finally came to terms and made peace with Athens. But aha, in 297, Cassander pops back up in the literary sources in force. In the spring of 297, Cassander attacked a group of Gauls, the Celts, in Thrace. We know nothing about how that turned out, we just know that it happened. Unfortunately, it seems that even as king of Macedon, Cassander was constantly troubled by the memory of Alexander the Great. We've already mentioned at the beginning, but Plutarch says that uh, Cassander would always tremble when he walked past a statue of Alexander. And yet, in a somewhat of an opposite perspective... 
Pliny the Elder says that Cassander commissioned a, f- a famous artist, Philozenus of Eretria, to paint a giant mosaic of a battle scene between Alexander and Darius. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Okay, so he commissioned that really famous one. One where um, Antic- Alexander and Darius were like looking, like at, each looking other at each other. Yeah. Well, that's not the one, but oh. that the one we found at Pompeii is very likely a copy of what this Philozenus guy completed for Cassander. Okay, cool. So that's, that's kind of cool. Yeah. We also know that Cassander was uh, still active in administrative matters in 297 because we have another inscription that year of a land grant that he had made to somebody. But now, looking back over his reign as overall, Polybius says that Cassander was well known at this time for securing his control over Greek cities through the use of garrisons. And while Cassander did have a reputation of being heavy-handed in his governing style, something that others might say is tyrannical, he was nevertheless well known as an effective and efficient ruler. In fact, the Greek geographer Strabo says that in the 10 years that Cassander had Athens under his control, many said that the democratic government in the city actually improved, despite the fact that Cassander had actually posed an oligarchy. But then, in April to May of 297, it happened. Cassander died. We don't have a ton of information, but we do get some insight from another Greek geographer, Pausanias. According to him, Cassander suffered from dropsy, better known now as edema, which is a buildup of fluid in the body's tissue. Pausanias also says, however, that Cassander's condition got so bad that he developed worms inside of his skin. Oh, God. Yeah. The only other specific information about Cassander's death comes from Eusebius much later, who vaguely states that Cassander died of a wasting disease. But speaking of succession plans, it is the case that Cassander was succeeded without any apparent issue or objection by his son, Philip IV, who we will cover in our next episode. And that's Cassander. I'm a little underwhelmed. Right? Yeah, and and, and that's not on you or, or any oh, of your researchers. Not. Yeah. No, no, no. I just, just like, huh, that's Cassander. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's I'm do jump it. jump right in. Do it. One, two, three. Do it, do it. Aristea, battle prowess. Ladies first. Eh? Um, I mean, like, he was fighting and he was putting down things. It's just, it's a little, obviously he did a good job because he sustained his holdings. But it kind of seems like he sustained more at the failures of others and, like, these great, you know, masterful strokes of his own. And everything like that. Especially when you look back and you compare, like, to Eumenes or Antigonus, and it's like, oh, that was just epic. It was more like, well, you were fighting Polypericon. Um, <laughs> That's like fighting a kitten. It's like, if you lose, I've got questions for you. Yeah, and I mean, that now that it, it did seem poised to be pretty impressive that he got Olympias there at that final siege when yeah. you were like, she had this supporter and this supporter and this supporter. Right, but then when you, exactly. When you start... But when you start delving into the fact of like, but this one was really far away and this one was in the city, but they didn't yeah. really have anything. It yeah. wasn't like, wow, you took down four powerhouses. It was like, well, that wasn't going to work very well anyway. She fled. I mean, probably to the best place she could have fled, but it was a simple thing to overtake it. But I mean, there is the fact that, you know, he died still in control of what he had. That's true. Which a lot of them don't. 
What you thinking? Five? Okay. Just a um, good middling? I agree with everything you said. I think the only thing I would um, emphasize differently is that, you know, to appreciate the high point, I think, of his military career when he was bobbing and weaving and dodging Polyparacon and getting ahead of Olympios and things like that. I think that you see some, like, lightning-fast moves there and some unorthodox military tactics, which was really impressive. And yet, you're right, because when he tried to do the same thing in reverse, like later that year or whenever, when Olympios was under siege, any success he had was really because, like how, how you said it, like other people had just failed. And then he, when he lost Athens, he never got it back. And like I said, towards the end there, when he was fighting Demetrius that last time, He's lucky that Antigonus called Demetrius home because the sources seem to be saying that Cassandra was losing ground. So I think I'll agree with you. I think to that I might give him a little bit more. I'll say a six. Okay. Okay. Eutychia. Success. I think it's my turn to go here. I think he did a great job because he avenged the disrespect. <laughs> the knife in the kidneys that was shown to his brothers by Olympias. She was pretty vicious. And I think it was just really smart PR-wise for him to rebuild Thebes. Uh, I think that building those two cities and naming one after himself and the other after his wife was just smart because he's clearly thinking ahead. He also is, I think, smart for being someone who recognized that his goal should not be to conquer everything, kind of like Ptolemy. Just keep what you got. Hold on to it. And I suspect he was cognizant of the fact that Macedon's resources and manpower were very reduced. Because you'll recall he tried to solve a lot of his problems through diplomacy. He couldn't throw around 70,000 soldiers like Antigonus could. So he had to make do with what he had. And overall, I just think his administrative stuff, from what we can tell, seems to be pretty uh, intelligent. And prudent, not always successful, but definitely a smart man at the helm. He's very capable. I'll give him a seven. I'll match that, yeah. All right. Akon. Image. I'm going to let you ten. share your... Hmm? Ten. Gets ten, ten. Ten. Oh, gosh. I have to, like, set back. Meredith's going <laughs> to tell me all about a certain actor. He holds my heart dear. And I, I am ashamed to say, I think that's why I've been like, oh, I've loved Cassander ever since I've ever heard of him. But I will send you what I have. So. Ling-a-ling-a-ling. Five images. Okay. Yeah. I could have done like a lot more. Uh, first and foremost, as is typical for the time, we have a coin. I love a good coin. Um, shows the person in profile with some sort of a helmet on, on the back. There's a person on a horse. Most descriptions attribute it to being made during his rule and therefore assume it is him. Mm -hmm. But then some say that they think it says Alexander. But that's all we've got in terms of contemporary images is a coin. He looks like a very angry man. Yeah, he's got a big uh, giant forehead. Yeah, yeah, I was about to say real prominent brow, sharp nose, angry man. Oh yeah. Yeah, so that's what I've got for actual like of the time. Everything else are depictions of Jonathan Reese Myers playing him in the Alexander movie. You know, looking like a little whiny nepo baby. Yeah, I mean I I'm really getting that vibe here. 
Yeah. It is interesting. I I watched a couple clips of it, and I know we're going to watch the whole movie anyway. Of course. But I get the impression in the Alexander movie, Cassander's there the whole time, which now I've learned is not accurate. I'm just used to seeing Jonathan Rhys Myers as King Henry VIII, and I'm like, mm -hmm, who's mm -hmm. this skinny dude? Who's this little baby? Yeah, it looks like he's taking part in some religious festival here. He's got, like, glitter on his face. That's when they're all in Persia. Yeah, there's him smiling at me in a way that makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, and there's him just kind of being mopey with a sword. Yeah, I do see that one. Now, that one definitely captures the spirit of Cassandra, like, why won't my dad let me play? Mm. So, yeah, I'd get uh, totally unbiased. I'd give him a 10. Serious? Yeah. Okay. This is going to be like the one time I ever do this this entire series. Hey, no, I love it. I love it. I just want to make sure you weren't just joking. Uh, Yeah, I'm going to see your 10 and then raise you a 3. That is totally fine. Yeah. Totally fine. You balance my madness. I will. Mm -hmm. All right, here we go. Mania. Craziness. Did Cassander ever do anything that made you go, what the hell were you thinking? Well, we have the hypothetical he murdered Alexander. Yeah. Along with his brothers. Yeah. Um, It's interesting. Uh, for anyone that wants more of a deep dive on Olympias, I definitely would recommend going to listen to Queen's podcast episode on her, which is where I was first introduced to Cassander. And obviously from Olympias's viewpoint, as that episode is, he comes across much more as the big bad but then to see everything from his viewpoint, it just doesn't ring crazy or reckless. I mean, her death, Olympias's death, was obviously like tragic and awful. But it was a it was a judicial murder. Oh, oh well, he did order Roxana and Alex for. But I don't even really know that I attribute that as crazy. Or, like, reckless, that's just taking care of your threats and your enemy. I don't think there's much there. Yeah, it's just a little TCB, man. Take care mm-hmm. of business. Taking know? care of business. Cover your assets. That's right. I mean, he had his fit when Polly Paracon got named after him, but even that, no. Yeah? Mm-mm. I'm not seeing much. You want to give me a number? I mean, maybe a one, just for the rumors of maybe murdering Alex. Okay. Uh... I agree with everything you said. His reactions to things seem pretty justifiable. The only one I think I would say was that early on when he summoned uh, Demides and Demios, and he killed the boy in front of his oh. dad, and like the like to the point where the blood splattered on the dad's clothes. It's a little hard. Um, yeah, I give him a couple I... points for that. Yeah, and yet I had forgotten that happened. Well, yeah, it was like blink and you miss it, which is mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what happened to Demios. Um, <laughs> I don't know what that means. But yeah, I agree. Everything else is like pretty reasonable reactions to things, and they're calculated. Mm-hmm. I- I'll say two. Okay, so a three. Mm-hmm. Okie dokie. Lastly, Kronos time. Let's see. I would say we should just go ahead and like start him when Eurydice declared him to be the to the new regent. Mm-hmm. So that would put him at starting at three sixteen, and then to his death in two ninety seven. Okay, so nineteen years. Ooh, close there. 
29.26. Ah, uh, yes, but remember Meredith. Oh, oh, we cap it. 20. That's right. He gets 20 for, for Kronos. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And the final thing, the bonus round. Catastrophe. Did his ass get assinated? Or did he die from natural-ish causes? Do you count being eaten by worms as assassination? I do not. I count that as really bad luck on your part. Alas, I do not either. So yes, he gets his bonus points. Bonus! Bonus, bonus, bonus. How many points does he have in total? 62. Dang, son. Well, so, I mean, you know, he's got the 20 points there for... The rain, he got his boost from me on Akon, but that puts him in a third behind Alex and Philip. I would agree with that. I think that's oh, a good hold assessment. Hold on, hold on, hold on. No, Uh-oh. no, 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 Uh-oh. no, no. Sorry. He's fourth behind Philip, Alex, Antigonus, which makes more sense to me. Yeah, it really does. You can't yeah. fault him. Like, that's the weirdest part about this period is like when you get to like the guys like Antigonus and Cassander and Eumenes, it's like mm-hmm. everybody's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's Polly Paracon. It's like, I want to play. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, well, I believe next on the list is Ant- is Cassander's son, Philip IV. Does he get the standard? Oh, shoot. I'm so sorry. You dumbass. I you, know. <laughs> you Dumas. You Dumas. Or whatever that story is. Oh, yeah. Is. You Dumas. Yeah. You Dumas. Um, Meredith, would you stop someone on the street and tell them about Cassander? No. Neither would I. No. I wouldn't stop him on the street. If we had been sitting at a cafe for a while and there was a lull in the conversation and I really wanted to feel that awkward silence, I still would talk about other things first. I'd talk about you minis again. Heck yeah. Uh, so no standard. Okay. No. Uh, so let me try this now. Well, next time we're going to be talking about Cassander's son, or his first son, Philip Fourth, And that's it. Okie dokie. You want to give us some um, social media stuff and stuff? And if you enjoyed our show, please leave us a rating or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Facebook at the Alexander Standard Podcast, Instagram at Alexander Standard Pod, X, formerly Twitter, at Alexander Standard Pod, Blue Sky at Alex Standard Pod, and then you can always email us at alexanderstandardpod at gmail.com. All right, and this has been the Alexander Stamp. Good night, one and all. All right, we're done. Oh, my God. Bye. Bye.